Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I found myself in a space where I had gotten a little off the rails, and I had experienced eating disorders as a teenager, both anorexia and bulimia, but I had been like all in, right? It had gone far enough that I had seen a therapist, but I had pulled it back from time to time. And what happened after I had this baby was I started keeping a secret, which was that I had fallen into bulimia and it felt exactly the same as when I was using drugs. Hey, friends, and welcome back to The Light Watkins Show, where I interview ordinary folks just like you and me who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith in the direction of their path, their purpose, or what they've identified as their mission. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact and inspire the lives of many other people who've either heard about their story or people who've witnessed them in action or people who've directly benefited from their work. And this week, I am in conversation with the founder of what's called the Big Ask Method, which is a platform that helps people ask for the help that they need. She is also a huge fitness influencer. Her name is Jamie Hess. So Jamie grew up in New York City. She grew up in a privileged life as the daughter of Joan London, who some of you may remember as one of the anchors of Good Morning America. And at an early age, Jamie, like many privileged young teenagers, got involved in drugs and alcohol. And later she started working in PR and she became a high functioning addict. Those are her words until an accident got her addicted to Vicodin. And then later on that spiraled into an addiction to Adderall, which she described as being far worse than any street drug she'd ever tried. And her mom had ridden her off and then had a change of heart and came back and tried to convince her to go to recovery. And this time it actually worked. Jamie was able to turn her life around. And that's when she became a fitness influencer. Then she met her now husband. They were set up on a blind date. And then he ended up proposing to her at Barry's boot camp. And together they started a platform called NYC Fit Fam. And as a fitness influencer, Jamie began sharing her addiction story and using it to motivate people to overcome whatever obstacles they were facing in order to get clean and healthy. So she essentially turned her mess into her message. But secretly, as a fitness influencer, Jamie developed an unhealthy relationship with food. And she began releasing her food after she ate. And then after one particular rock bottom moment where her newborn was in one room crying and she was in the bathroom releasing her food, she decided that she had to ask for help. So she opened up to her husband, told him what was going on. And through that experience, she began helping other people ask for help. And that's what led to the big ask method, where she now works with other people, mainly women who struggle to ask for help. 
And Jamie's work has been featured on The Dr. Oz Show, The Today Show, Good Morning America, The View, and many other television shows. She has a huge social media presence, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers. And during this interview, Jamie was very transparent, very open. We go into her full backstory. We talk about what it means to be a high-functioning addict and how to recognize when there is an issue, seeing as how alcohol has been so normalized in our society. Sometimes it's hard to know, hey, do I have an issue or, or am I good? We talk about the power of asking for help and how that can open up new dimensions in your life and in your career. We also speak about what to say and or what's a healthy way to approach someone that you may know who is struggling with an addiction. And we'll look at the steps that you can take to turn your mess into your message. So this was a fascinating conversation. I think you're really going to be inspired by not just Jamie's story, but the way that she relates to her story, because she's a complete open book. And I think that when we see someone being so transparent, it allows us to become more transparent with the things that we're going through if they can help other people. So without further ado, I would like to introduce you to Miss Jamie Hess. Jamie, thank you so much for coming on to my podcast. It's so good to see your shining face again. I think we met last summer in Detroit. We did. At a conference. Right. And we yeah, didn't really connect like at, you... at the conference. We just kind of saw each other, and but there was definitely a shared bond there. And I knew I was going to end up connecting with you at some point in the future. That's exactly how I felt as well. You know, we are at this conference for, you know, kind of up-leveling our game as professional speakers and getting our message out and really honing that skill. And it was so cool to meet everybody there because there was nobody there that was just like, Oh, I don't know. You know, I'm just kind of doing this thing. Like every person there was on a mission to shine their light and spread their message. But you, my friend, you stood out and you made an impact on me immediately. And I remember, I, I believe I was with my a girlfriend, Mandy, another speaker there. I think that's when I met you. And immediately your presence, this is why you're like a Zen master. It was very calming. You have an amazing way of speaking. And I immediately felt comfortable in your presence. And that is so unusual. And I just hope you know that you have that gift. Oh, thank you so much. In full transparency, I had a, so much imposter syndrome there. I was like, I don't, I don't need to be here with these people. They're all, they're all professional speakers. I mean, I've done little talks here and there, but thank you so much for acknowledging that. Appreciate that. And I felt the same about you. When you gave up and told the snippet of your story, I was like, oh my God, I have to have her on my podcast because that's amazing to overcome all of that. Thank you. Yeah. And it's important to share when we have imposter syndrome. I think so many people just stride out on social media and they're like, I've got this all. And that's why we're all so broken and mentally unwell. So I think it's really important to say like, oh no, I feel like an imposter 99% of the time. And nevertheless, I persist. And I think that's yeah. the part of the message that matters. Yeah. I've said, if you don't have imposter syndrome, you need to go further out of your comfort zone. That's right. <laughs> that's right. I like to start these conversations off talking about your early days, childhood era. Okay. And I know you grew up in New York City. We'll talk about that in a moment. But thinking back to little Jamie, if that's what you were called <laughs> when you were six or seven years old, do you remember having a favorite toy or activity? Yep. So little Jamie, I actually, people used to call me Annie because I had like an Afro, like a red <laughs> Afro, which is quite <laughs> funny when you look at me now. 
but I literally had this big red Annie Afro, like from the cartoon. People used to saying, the sun will come out tomorrow. And like, they were literally, and it was so funny. It used to make me feel so annoyed. I would say, I'm not Annie, I'm Jamie, but it's a beautiful memory. And I was very, very close with my parents. I had a, a really lovely upbringing. So my mom is Joan London. She hosted Good Morning America for almost two decades. So I had a really interesting upbringing. You know, I think a lot of things that probably other children didn't experience, but I didn't know that it was not normal. You know, like Christmas morning for us, as an example, was always getting up and getting hair and makeup because my mom hosted the Disney Christmas parade. So I always was like on a float with Mickey and Minnie for Christmas. Like that's just how everyone celebrates Christmas, right? Um, But there's a lot of good and bad that come with having a parent who's in the public spotlight. And I'll tell you a little bit as we get on with my story about how that affected me later on in life. But the early years before I became affected, like all preteens do and sullen and (laughs) the early years were great. And I had a really lovely, happy childhood. I'm a horseback rider. And so I remember my entire world revolving around my pony when I was six and seven. That's when I started riding. And I I got a pony, by the way, that was named Bud Light. Now, I don't know why my mom let that remain his name, but or why anyone thought that was an appropriate name for a, a kid's pony, but we called him Buddy. And he was my entire life. And I've often thought back to my passion for that sport, for horseback riding, and I just credit it with saving my life. It saved my life over and over again as the years went on and my story unfolds. And I'm so grateful that I learned to have that passion and and value another animal and his consciousness over my own at a very young age. Interesting that you said you saved your life because it also injured you at one point. But before we get to that, what did you, as a six or seven year old on your pony on Bud Light, (laughs) what did (laughs) you get? What did you get from that experience? If you can remember back then, like, did it make you feel seen? Was it a way to? play? Like, What was the dominant benefit that you remember getting from that experience? This is the best question. I don't think I've ever thought about it late. This is truly actually like opening my my third eye to something right now, (laughs) which is that horseback riding was always terrifying to me. Always. It's still to this day. And I rode professionally for several years as well, but I had a lot of physical body fear because you you fall off and it hurts and it happens. There's Mm -hmm. no way that your parents can save you from that. My mom had always been able to kind of bail me out of things that were uncomfortable in the past. But when I was out there on my horse for the first time, it's going to happen. You're going to get bucked off. You're going to get hurt. And it is scary to ride on a one-ton animal, no matter what age you are. And you're really high up. I mean, I'm six foot three. When I'm on a horse, I'm like, man, this is high up. And you're jumping and you're a six-year-old kid. So you must have felt like you're on a skyscraper. I was terrified a lot of the time. But I loved the sport enough that I kept going. But you know what? You know what I really loved? I loved the feeling of pushing past the fear and coming out on the other side with a sense of pride and accomplishment. It was the first time that I ever had to challenge myself to step out of my box of comfort and security in a way that was really real. And somewhere in my young brain, I knew that the benefits and rewards I was going to get from doing hard things, being a human who does hard things that those things mattered in life. And that I knew I had to stick with it for that reason. And I will tell you, it is probably the thing that has made me braver and more nimble and more disciplined than anything else in my entire life is is my long time experience with horseback riding. Did you have a coach the whole time or did you work with several people? 
You have a coach the whole time. Over the course of my life, I had two really major coaches that I was with each of them for about 10 years. And when you do any sport, especially as a child, your coach is next to God, man. Like you don't mess around. Like your coach is everything. And I'm so grateful for that relationship. You know, I think also as a child, your coach can tell you things in a way that your parent can't. Right. I think all of that is very important for children doing organized sports. Was the coach the one that kind of gave you language around, hey, you're overcoming fear. This will come in handy one day. Or is that just your six-year-old wisdom, maybe from a past life? I don't think that my coach gave me that. My first coach was extremely hard on me. I don't know who scared the shit out of me more, my pony or or my coach. I think it was my coach. I think I was just so scared. I was scared of my pony dumping me on the ground, but I was more scared of my coach and how she would yell at me if I didn't persevere and just fight through the fear. So Mm -hmm. I did it anyway. And so, you know, I learned how to do things scared. Growing up, you were only child, right? I know your mom had a bunch of other kids, but... No, I had sisters. I did. I had two sisters. Yeah, Lindsay and Sarah. And they're three years and then seven years younger than me. You're the oldest. I'm the oldest. Okay. So growing up as the daughter of this, you know, famous person in, in New York City, what was that vibe like in your house? Were there any philosophies or ideologies that your mom would talk about or your dad would talk about at home? Like you should work hard, you study, or were you being groomed to be on television? Like what was the vibe like? Quite the opposite from being groomed to be on television. My mother is the most down to earth human and has always played it that way. So here's, there's two kind of things at play. On one hand, my mother is extremely humble and grounded, practical, and really tried to raise us and imbue us with a sense of hard work and practicality. I remember I was just speaking to my husband about this last night because we're going to take our kids to Disney World. And my husband said, well, you know, your family kind of ruined Disney for you when you're growing up because it's like, how could you ever go back as an adult without having all the backstage access and having to wait in line? And I said, I hear that. But my parents, and actually my father was the one who used to remind me of this. Every time we would go, he would say, you know, Jamie, it's so nice that we get to skip the lines. But I want you to understand that someday you will probably have to stand in the line. And when you do, you will meet doctors and lawyers and plumbers and taxi drivers and businessmen and all sorts of different people standing in that line, taking their kids on a ride, waiting for the chance to have this experience. The wait makes the experience that much sweeter. So I don't want you to ever look at having to do things like a quote unquote normal person as a negative. Understand that in getting to skip the line, you may even be missing a little bit of this experience because part of the experience is that it's that much more precious by having to wait for it. So I think my parents really worked hard to not ever let us be spoiled brats. I mean, that was just not the vibe in my house. On the other hand, I will just mention though that my family very much valued working hard. And so today I have this super duper hustle culture mentality, which sometimes serves me really well. It can be my biggest asset or my biggest liability. I'm still stuck a little bit in that 90s mentality of the person who sends the latest email wins. And I worked in public relations for a really long time. That whole devil wears Prada kind of sensibility from that movie, those were all my bosses. and. It was not a place that valued self-care. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) However, and so sometimes I have to unlearn these things. You know, I have to unlearn these things. And I have to remember spending that cherished time with my children, 
making sure that they can see my softer side and and hear me, you know, with belly laughs and all the things that really matter in life rather than being so anxiety driven by work seven days a week. I have to remind myself that balance matters. But I will also say that much like my own mother, my kids will always know and will always hear me say, I get to go to work, not I have to go to work. And they will understand that while I value being a mother and I value them so, so, so much, and I love them so much, I value work and work fills my cup. So like I would be a shitty stay-at-home mom. God bless any stay-at-home mom. She 100% has the harder job. I think stay-at-home moms have it harder. For me, going to work was my only option because that's who I am fundamentally at my core, but I need that part to fill me, to fill my ego, to fill also my sense of purpose on this planet. So I think everybody you know, needs to understand what fills their spiritual cup and make sure that they're just leaning into those sensibilities. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, TheHappinessInsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. Speaking of which, as you were growing up, what did you envision yourself becoming as an adult? The first career I had was in public relations. And public relations, it's become something a bit different now. But back in my day, it was very much about securing earned media hits for your clients, which basically meant a lot of really intriguing and and creative copywriting and writing great press releases, telling a great story, networking, bringing your client to the cool events getting them out and making introductions and being at the nucleus, at the center, at the heartbeat of the scene in New York City or wherever it was that you were doing that work. And I knew from a very early age that that's what I was destined to do. I just didn't know it was called public relations. So when I was a teenager, I was already contributing articles for all of, I was a horseback rider, like I said. So I was contributing articles to all of the equestrian magazines. I had gone out to every single one of them either marched my butt into their office or sent them, you know, I don't even know if we had email back then, called them maybe on the phone. I'm 42. I'm not like ancient, but you know, I didn't have email until I went to college. So that wasn't something that we just naturally had. 
when I was oh, wait, growing up. Who, who told you that this is the the right approach? Like, did, you, did someone coach you into this, or you just no, it was woke completely up completely intuitive? I just had a tenacity because I watched my mom, and I watched she was in a completely male dominated industry. I mean, my mom. So before my, for any younger people listening who might not know who my mom is, I really respect and value my mom so much. And she's my role model because she came up at a time where there were no other women in really broadcast journalism, except for Barbara Walters. So Barbara Walters really blazed the trail. Oprah came up around the same time as my mom. So obviously she did it differently, but my mom was really the first person to have a baby on TV. And I was that baby. So she actually found out that she got the job on Good Morning America in 1980 at the very beginning of, let's see, when uh, so I was born in July of 1980. So nine months prior to that, she got the job on GMA. She found out two weeks later, she was pregnant with me. So that's the timeline of that. So she was literally like breastfeeding me in the car and reading her script on the way into the studio at four in the morning. And then for years until they moved studios, the copy machine room at ABC News had a little placard on it that said baby Jamie. And it was still up there for like 20 (laughs) or 30 years before they moved to their Times Square studios. So I was very much a baked in part of the ethos of like ABC News. And I didn't realize this till I was older. And I would hear women come up to my mom and say how much she impacted them. But, you know, she was this trailblazer. And so similarly, I think I had watched that and, and just adopted something from that intuitively. Like, you got to go out and make your own way. You don't wait for someone to give it to you. You go out and if you want it, you get it. So I was also doing pro bono work for a bunch of, this is like, you know, in the nineties, a lot of my friends in the horse world were gay men. We were just coming through the AIDS crisis. So I was doing a lot of work for all of these AIDS charities and I started doing PR and event planning for them. I still didn't really know that that's what it was called, but Mm -hmm. that's what I was doing. I got very into the New York nightlife scene in my late teens. I wasn't even old enough to be in a nightclub, but I started, you know, throwing events and doing promotions and DJ stuff. I was doing PR and DJ bookings for all of these entertainers and the gay nightlife scene. And I just became very much a part of this kind of hobnobby New York world before I even had my first internship. Later on, I would realize that all of those skills I was learning were public relations. Were you known as Joan London's kid or were you, did you have your own sort of identity at that time? I worked very hard not to lead with that piece of information. I almost never told anybody unless they found out naturally. Today, my mom and I do a lot of work and campaigns together. I think it's really fun that we kind of have this message of health and women's empowerment from two different generational standpoints. But now it's kind of a part of our brand because we each have our own brand that we've decided to merge at times. But when I was younger, I was very intent on making my own name. So you're at NYU, you're still competing in equestrian, right? And your worst nightmare ends up happening. And that sent you on a different track and not so great of a way. Can you talk about that experience? Riding is a very dangerous sport. And so I actually had, in the course of two years, I had two catastrophic accidents. Mm -hmm. My first one was in 1999. I was 19 years old and I was at NYU. And I was riding down in Wellington, Florida. So the whole horse world moves to Palm Beach for the winter. So I used to go to school Monday through Thursday at NYU. And then I would fly down to West Palm Beach on the weekends, compete, and then fly back. And one of the weekends I was competing in a very big 
competition. It was actually the trials for the Junior Olympics. The year before I had gotten the silver medal in the Junior Olympics, this was going to be my last year to compete in that age group. And so I was doing the trials to compete one last time. And my horse flipped over a jump and I shattered my leg, like tibia, fibula shattered. So it took me a really long time to come back from that accident. Now, let me just give one more pulse point. As I was coming through all of these things and making my name as this hobnobby, like little young burgeoning New York girl doing all these things, part of that identity was champagne and cocaine, models and bottles. Like that's what it was, you know? And if you weren't on that path, you weren't part of this scene. I already had a proclivity to drug use. I think that my mom, when I look back, when I've done some soul searching, My mom being so perfect, I'm using air quotes, right? She was America's mom. She was like waving an American flag and baking an apple pie as far as America was concerned. And I almost felt, well, I could never be that perfect. So I might as well just go the other direction. I think there was a part of me that not consciously, but a part of me that made that choice. And so I had started going to raves. This is the nineties and being part of the party scene. That's how I found my way to the New York nightlife scene. And so I had started using drugs pretty young. And that became part of my story. When I broke my leg, that became this new like freeway to painkiller drugs. And it was this whole new world of like, oh my God, a doctor will give this to me. I don't even have to go get street drugs. Wow. This is like the greatest thing I ever discovered. So here I was recovering from this really quite serious injury, but it parlayed, it opened up a new door of drug use that became more habitual. I mean, quite honestly, previously it had been street drugs. It had been part of the New York nightlife scene and part of a recreational moment of my life. And this actually became a habit. So that was not great. And then I actually had a second accident where I broke my face. I just come back from the riding accident with my leg. And then I went to another competition and my horse tripped and fell on me and I broke my face. So after these two years, of recovering from a riding accident and also getting basically streamlined opiate narcotic painkillers, I was in not such a great place, you know? And I also decided to give up my sport because understandably, I was kind of like, was this a really great hobby? And now it's time to move on because I keep getting hurt or am I going to do this professionally? I decided it was not going to be my profession. I was going to work in public relations and move on. So I gave up my sport. But like I mentioned earlier, that sport had been the one thing that was really keeping me grounded it also provided a bit of an opportunity for me to fly off the rails when I did give up my sport. Cause all of a sudden I was like, who am I? What was your relationship like with your mom at that time? Was it contentious or did anybody know that you were on all these drugs? By that time, my mom was like, you know what? We're done here. I don't know what else I can do. So you guys had been having fights and arguments and stuff leading up to that. She would call you out and say, what's wrong with you and all that. She had no idea how to deal with it. I fault her for that zero. She had no historical reference for understanding. She doesn't use drugs. She never had any sort of an addictive nature. None of it made sense to her. And she just thought I was being an asshole, which I was. But the reason I was being an asshole was because I was I, my brain was hijacked. I was completely underwater and I had no way of getting out of it. And so... She kind of just let go of the reins and was like, you know what, girl, good luck. And I was like, great, let me do mm. me. And I, I did that. And then I ran myself into the ground. You mentioned in something I've researched that there's a drug to treat opioids. How does that work? 
It doesn't. <laughs> no, that's not true. So it does work. So I'll give you a quick fast forward. The fast forward was I ran myself into the ground with drugs in my early 20s and I started attending spiritual recovery meetings that are anonymous. So I won't exactly share which ones, but people in recovery circles probably know. And if you have questions about it, my DMs are always open. So I'll just leave that there. NYC Fit Fam, you're welcome to DM me and ask me more questions. But I started joining spiritual recovery groups to get sober. And that started like an in and out. Like I would be sober for a little while and then I would just relapse because I was working in New York City nightlife at that point through my 20s. And then finally, in my mid to late 20s, I just completely imploded. At that point, I actually, the party was over. Like I wasn't doing hard drugs. I was just completely addicted to things like opiate, painkillers, and also Adderall. Adderall, And I think that's an important thing to mention because so many people today are addicted to drugs that they're not buying in a crack house. But let me tell you, those drugs were worse than anything that ever happened to me with recreational like street drugs. And so they're very addictive and you should be very concerned if you feel that you have a problem with those drugs and you should not try to fix it by yourself. I, mm. I implore you because it really does take some external help. But my mom finally came banging down my door. I was about 27. And finally, my wonderful stepfather had been like, what are you going to do about Jamie? Like she needs some help. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that she found the courage to do that. And so she came to my New York City apartment And that was uh, the first day of the rest of my life because she helped me get to treatment. I went to rehab and I'm so glad she did. Now, at that point, though, I had been put on something called Suboxone, which is similar to like methadone, that type of a drug. My opinion, I'm not a doctor, but my opinion, but I have been around recovery circles for 20 years and I've seen a lot of people try to get off like opiate painkillers. And I think I probably would have been better off just trying to detox off of the painkillers. I think those harm reduction drugs can be really challenging. And again, look, this is my opinion. Okay. I'm not a doctor. So everybody out there can take it as they wish, but the withdrawal off of that drug was so much worse than anything I'd ever experienced before and took months and months and months until I was normal again. And it was really hard. And had I not been in a safe place, like in treatment, there's no way I would have made it. There's just no way. So I'm very grateful that I had that opportunity to get off of that stuff under medical supervision. Can you just share a little more about what your mom was able to do or say to break through that time? I'm sure other parents may be listening to this and they've been having a hard time getting through their kids. Why that time? Why did that resonate with you? She's verbalized several times since that she feels bad that she didn't do it earlier. I don't know that I would have been ready to hear her message earlier, to be honest. And That's not to discourage anybody from approaching their teenage or young adult addicted child, because you should, you save them as soon as you can. But at the point that she came and banged on my door, I was so sick and tired of being sick and tired. I mean, Adderall is a vicious drug. I mean, Adderall is just, it's amphetamine in a bottle. So just so we're all aware, like literally the generic form of Adderall says on the bottle amphetamine salt. So if you think that you're just giving it to a young person especially if there's any proclivity to having an addictive nature and that they're going to be fine, you're sorely mistaken. And so I was just having this whole last year of my life there where every time I started a day, I knew it was I was going to be up for four days. And it was just a literal insanity, literal insanity. And I was so miserable in that life, but I had picked up the phone to call my mom at least 100 times. And I dialed the first three numbers and then hung up because I just thought maybe tomorrow I'll be able to fix it myself. 
maybe tomorrow, you know? And I was so ashamed. I was so ashamed, you know, here she is this like picture of perfection. And I I just felt like such a, a, an F up, you know, without using really bad language. So I just felt so embarrassed of my actions. But the funny thing is, is that sometimes we're so ashamed. And so we don't reach out for help because we don't want to let on about how bad our behavior is. But in doing that, the behavior gets worse and worse and worse. And we just have more and more to be ashamed of. So if we could intervene on that cycle, or if I could have intervened on my relapse process a little bit earlier, I could have avoided so much self-harm. But unfortunately, I just wasn't there yet. Her coming to knock down my door, I had just been waiting. I had just been hoping and praying to the universe that she would do it. That, you know, it took me a few extra years of suffering to get there. Were you otherwise successful in your job as a PR person? And what did that what does that look like? I had been for years. I had had a very successful career in PR, but in that last year, I was, I'm doing air quotes here, freelancing, right? So I left my last job and my last job had been in-house public relations for one of the biggest nightclubs in the United States. So they were in New York, Chicago, and Miami. Understandably, you know, in my trying to get sober and kept going in and out, I just said like, this job isn't the best for me. And I had had a couple of freelance clients at that time. I said, I'm just going to step away from this job where I have to be in a nightclub all the time. And I'm just going to kind of do this freelance consulting for a while until I get my sea legs under me. But what it did was I'm not the type of person, or at least I wasn't back then, who should be left without structure, right? Without the structure of having to show up at work every day. I wasn't there yet. Now, today, I'm a very successful solopreneur, but back then I didn't have the tools. And so I just completely imploded. So that last year of my life was spent scrambling to kind of keep up with these freelance clients that I had. I would not say I was successful at that time. I would say, in fact, that I was so lucky because all of my yets had come true. So they always say, you know, when you go into recovery groups, they say, you know, I wasn't unemployed and unemployable yet, or Hmm. hadn't lost all my family and friends yet. I wasn't homeless yet. Well, by the end of that, My family and friends had stopped talking to me. I was getting evicted from my apartment and I really had no discernible job. So my yets came true. So what I then had was the gift of desperation. And that's why I was so willing to go to treatment. So it's actually a wonderful place to be is on your knees because Mm. you have no place to go but up. It's much harder for high-functioning addicts to receive help because Mm -hmm. they still think maybe I can bail myself out. What I can tell you is your yets will come true. Your bottom has a trap door and it leads to an even deeper bottom. I promise you. So addiction is not a disease that heals itself, right? Like that's just wishful thinking. You do need to get help and get better. And it doesn't have to get as bad as it got for me. That's a question I had about high functioning addicts. Because I think people who are high functioning may not consider themselves to be addicted to things right? So how do you define addiction in that context? And how can someone assess whether or not they are a high-functioning addict? There is a 21-question quiz that Alcoholics Anonymous at the main organization, the headquarters has. And I believe if you go to their website, you can like take it. And it does give some really like high-level questions that are actually very helpful. And it's like, if you answer yes to more than this many questions, you know, you really might have a problem. Mm-hmm. I would just challenge you to ask yourself, is this thing creating a problem in my life? Does it take up more real estate in my brain than I would like it to? 
does this thing have more of a hold over me than I believe is safe and healthy? Those are some pretty simple questions you can ask yourself. You may still be very high functioning. And by the way, it might never rob all of that from you, but it might rob your own energy. It might zap your life force. It might steal your peace. And whether or not it steals your money or your opportunities, is it worth stealing your peace? You should have the power over your own life and your own choices. And if a substance or a liquid is having that power, then you really need to assess that. Because ultimately, by the way, it will get worse. Like addiction never just stays static. It doesn't stay neutral. You're always floating closer to or farther away from the problem. So you might want to consider that as well. You mentioned that when you did go into recovery, you adopted an attitude of gratitude, which is a feature of the recovery process. Can you talk a little bit about what that actually looks like? Were you like walking around telling everyone how grateful you were or is it more normalized than that? I'm still obnoxiously walking around telling everybody how grateful I am (laughs) because honestly, in my opinion, it's the key to happiness is the key to life. I think that there's nothing more important than gratitude when it comes to living a happy life. And I hear people all the, you know, there's so much, oh man, it's a matter of perspective, but there's so many people that I hear that just get stuck in the cycle of complaining and everything's a problem. And it's like, I wake up every day. And by the way, this isn't just intuitive. This is a practiced exercise that my husband and I both do. He happens to also be in recovery. So it's kind of neat. We're kind of like, you know, because the two of us live together, it's like being, you know, in a meeting every day and a meeting of the minds around recovery. So gratitude is the nucleus of every single thing that we do. You know, I've been sober for many, many years now and I wake up on Saturday mornings and I, sometimes I'll just kind of give them a little elbow and I'll be like, man, do you remember when Saturday mornings like would either be this massive hangover or like we would still be up like cracked out for the night before? Not us. My husband and I never used together, but both of us experienced that side of life. And I'll still think about all the people coming home from bars or clubs and how awful that must feel and how glad I am that I'm not in that lifestyle anymore. So on like a really generic level, I'm just appreciative that I'm not living in a hangover anymore. But just on a grander level, I do lean into every single day. I'm so grateful for my health, for my opportunity to do professionally a thing that I love, for the roof over my head, for the life I have built. It is all so beautiful. And the ability to experience the presence of mind, to see it all for what it is. I, like anybody else, could lean into the modern annoyances of everyday life to the client that's not responding the way I want him to, or to the vendor that didn't pay on time or whatever. That's just not what's important. An attitude of gratitude is the absolute heart of recovery and of a recovering mindset. So I make that the centerpiece of my life. So you're in recovery in your late twenties. Are you working out at this point? When I got sober, I spent a couple of years actually away from New York. It was more important to get my sea legs under me than it was to just go running back to an industry that kind of like chewed me up and spit me out. Although I let that happen, but it wasn't the best idea for me to go back to that industry that really is very like event centric and all of that. So I went back to my sport for three years. So here's another time where my passion for horses saved my life. I was riding professionally. I lived in South Florida for a couple of years and then out on the West Coast in LA for a couple of years and got myself back together. I went back to New York right around the time when I hit 30. At that time, I discovered boutique fitness. And the boutique fitness scene was just becoming a big thing. So when I say boutique fitness, I mean SoulCycle, Barry's Boot Camp. In New York, I used to go to Y7 a lot, which is like hot hip-hop candlelight yoga, all of these different places. 
And all of a sudden I realized, oh my God, all of the energy that I was looking for on the dance floor, that tribal beat and that rhythm and that communal way of moving and grooving together. I found it again. I just found it on the floor of Barry's boot camp and that same endorphin rush and that high. It was like I had rediscovered everything that I had loved about finding that community and also my my sense of belonging that I that's part of what I loved about nightlife. It wasn't just the drugs, it was the music and the rhythm and my sense of belonging and this community. I found that again in the boutique fitness scene. And I literally transferred my love of nightlife to my love of boutique fitness and it became my new north star. And so I started sharing about that a little bit on social media at that time and also with my my people around me. So I had gone back to New York when I was 30, gone back to public relations and I was working in a corporate environment where I was seeing people burn the f out. I mean, just that New York hustle mentality that I mentioned earlier, right? Like If you're sending that email from 10 p.m. and you're still in the office, everyone gives you like a little low-key round of applause and like, it's not healthy. So I started helping people with my own best practices around, you know, healthy mindset and making your fitness and your nutrition your priority because that really is, you know, your health is your wealth and all of that stuff. And I started helping people a little bit fundamentally kind of one-on-one and then sharing about those tactics on social media. And then I met my now husband. Before we get to your husband, yeah. is this when you started sharing your recovery story or your addiction story? Yeah. So I would say that I've always been really open about my recovery story. You know, the thing for me is that we talked about this a little bit earlier. I've always believed in making your mess your message. I also think it's maybe a generational thing. Like I think back in my mother's or my parents' generation, you played your cards close to the chest. I think you didn't share a lot. You you kept things private. You know, you didn't make, you know, you didn't share your business. And this is kind of before social media had become a huge, you know, it was a thing, obviously, but it wasn't like it is today. So I don't even think it was social media. I think it was just my own understanding that I had the ability to save someone's life if I told my story, perhaps. I felt that. I felt that deep. And that's a big part of, you know, of the recovery community that I was a part of is just sharing your message. One addict helping another is, should always be your responsibility. If somebody else reaches out their hand, no matter who it is, you take that hand and you help them. So I was sharing about all of this kind of together, right? So like, this is how I recovered. This is how I got better. Let me share this with you. It might help. I don't know how your, your relationship with Tracy Young, but she was pitched an idea of setting you up with someone who happened to be 20 years older. You didn't know that he was 20 years older at the time though. Were you dating? Were you interested? Is this one of those situations where you didn't want to go, but you forced yourself to go? It was that. You know what it was? So here I am three years sober. Because I hate blind time. dates. <laughs> yeah. I, here I was three years sober. I had come back to New York. I had hit the ground running and I was happy. And Tracy Young is a, a world famous DJ. She actually just won a Grammy last year. She was nominated this year too, but she won a Grammy the year mm. before for her Madonna remix. And she's a big darling of the gay nightlife scene. And like I said, I was very much in like the LGBTQ nightlife scene. I did a ton of PR, DJ booking and planned circuit parties, which is a big thing in the gay club life world. And I used to joke, you know, when I was in my twenties, people were like, why are you doing the gay nightlife scene? I was like, I can't find any straight people that can party as hard as I can, you know, like throw a little glitter on a girl and go do a twirl. And that was like my whole thing. And so I would just go out with, with my boys and had a lot of fun. And I was still in that scene very much, even though I was sober. 
So Tracy Young, being a big DJ in the gay nightlife world, she was actually a friend and a client. She became a client. I was helping her with her PR. I had red carpeted her at an event one night and we were walking home. It was a beautiful New York night. And she said, Jamie, why, why, why don't you have a boyfriend? Why aren't you dating? And I said, because I'm happy. Full stop. You know, like I'm not looking for anyone to mess that up. I'm good. I have my time to go to the gym, to do my thing. Like I'm good. She was like, I have this guy. I was like, oh God. All right. Tell me about him. So she was telling me about her friend, George. And I don't think she mentioned that he was 20 years older than me, but she did tell me that he was in the music industry and a bunch of other things that I found interesting. I was like, all right, fine, Trace. I'll go out with your friend, George. You know, I'll meet him. What, what, what harm could it do? Right. So we ended up going out on a blind date. And I, I mean, it was just one of those things. Like I walked in the front door of this restaurant, this little Mexican restaurant in Soho. And I saw these warm eyes and the smile. And he looked at me and like, we literally knew it was one of those things. We walked in the restaurant and that was 11 years ago. And we literally have not basically spent like hardly a day apart in the last 11 years. And somehow we're still not tired of each other yet, but we had this, this dinner that first night on that blind date. And I think both of us had this thinking like, all right, let's just put all the cards out on the table. And if the other person's still there when we're done, then we're good. And so I was like, yeah, Hey, so like sober alcoholic and drug addict in recovery. And he was like, cool. You know, I've been married a few times and have, you know, three grown children. I was like, cool. And both of us were like, all right, great. So that's cool. Everyone has their baggage. And that was that. And four months later, we were literally only dating for four months. We were at a Barry's boot camp class at our normal 7 a.m. class that we took every morning. And at the end of class, all of a sudden, like the music changed and, and the music kind of got lower and everybody seemed to know something was about to happen but me. And I turned around and George was down on one knee after our last treadmill sprint. So we were all like hot and sweaty and looked crazy. And my mom and my sisters popped into the studio. They they'd been waiting in the back. And he proposed to me on a treadmill at Barry's boot camp. So a very cute app proposal. But what also happened from that proposal, I think also because my mom was there, was that it got a, a bunch of media attention. So it ended up on page six in the New York Post and it ended up in a couple of different magazines. And it kind of started our public facing persona as like a fit couple. And from there, because I was a PR and marketing girl, I was like, well, this is kind of cool. Why don't we, instead of sharing on our own personal Instagram accounts about all of this fitness stuff that we do, because we each kind of had our own, we each had our own jobs. And I also was sharing about PR and marketing tactics. And he was sharing about the music industry. I was like, maybe we start an Instagram account together about us as like a fit couple. That could be fun. Let's call it NYC Fit Fam because everybody on social media right now is using the hashtag Fit Fam moniker, you know? And so we did. And we didn't know that decision was going to change our life. NYC Fit Fam, you're now social media influencers, but then you have a secret. You start developing a new addiction. Yes. So the fast forward on that is that the account grew and people really started following me through my fit pregnancy journey. That's when the account really like had this crazy uptick. Mm-hmm. Were you was, posting every day or what was the what was the strategy for growing this account? It's so funny. You know, I ran social media marketing for the biggest brands on the planet, McDonald's, General Motors, LinkedIn, you know, W Hotels Worldwide. These were my PR clients. And so influencer marketing was a big part of that. So I had some best practices, but learning how to grow an Instagram account and figuring out your own 
strategic moves. It's just a day-to-day trial and error. Yeah. Yeah. There's playbooks for it, but no two equations are going to work the same, you know, for everybody. So I did a lot of IRL events, right? Like a lot of in real life, like community building where we brought NYC FitFam into the real life space. We would do host classes and do nutrition stuff and vegan stuff and all the different, we were just playing with community, the idea of community because hashtag FitFam means that. It's like getting people together around fitness and a shared love of that. So we did a lot of that. I did a lot of collaborations. I did a lot of like, I was going to all the cool New York City influencer events. I started getting invited to them. And then people start following you because you're seen in those circles. And so the account started growing. And I think also we were just sharing really organically from the heart. I think authenticity always wins. I think that shines through. So my fit pregnancy journey, I was sharing a lot about that. And people started following me around that. And the account was growing and growing. And it grew so much that, you know, I was starting to consider maybe the side hustle is going to outpace my real hustle. Like maybe it could be a real job. Like, let's see. I started pursuing it to also be, you know, I was getting asked to be a wellness influencer on TV on behalf of brands and stuff like that. So I was like really allowing it to be a platform to other things. And then I found out I was pregnant, which was wonderful. In fact, by, by found out I was pregnant, I act like it was a surprise. I did IVF. So I found out that it worked, you know, and I did the whole fit pregnancy thing. And then I had the baby. After you have a child, especially when you're breastfeeding, it's really easy to get very confused about what is right nutritionally. You mm-hmm. have a lot of pressure from the outside to do everything, to breastfeed, to, you know, you have people saying, you know, you should watch what you eat because, you, you know, you're fostering a little life. You have other people saying, you know, don't let people tell you that you need to be watching what you're eating because you should be breastfeeding. You should be eating all the things. And it's just like, oh my God. And you can make so many excuses for heavy eating because you're like, well, I am like, you know, eating for two kind of thing. And I just got into this really confused space. My body was completely in turmoil because having a baby is like, it's funny. Everybody asks, how is your delivery? The delivery is not the hard part. Okay. The delivery is not the hard part. The month to 90 days after is unbelievably challenging. Not only is your body torn apart and there's so much physical recovery to to do, but mentally and hormonally, you are just a wreck. And so I had what I now know was some postpartum depression. I didn't realize that at the time. And I certainly didn't even want to admit it because I was like, you know, I was the positive girl, you know, like I can't be depressed. And I was just leaning into a lot of like really carby eating and I wasn't going to the gym because I I had to protect my body. It was just really, really not feeling ready to go back to the gym. Mm-hmm. And I started gaining this weight. And I had also, you know, by turning on that faucet of really allowing like so many sweet foods and sweet treats back into my life, it really turned on this addiction again in my brain. And when you look at the studies on sugar and its addictive nature, it's as addictive as cocaine. So for somebody with a proclivity to addiction, to really lean in and dive in with almost a free hall pass to dive into that like carby comfort food type of thing, I found myself in a space where I had gotten a little off the rails and I had experienced eating disorders as a teenager, both anorexia and bulimia, but it didn't have been like all in, right? It had gone or enough that I had seen a therapist, but I had pulled it back from time to time. And what happened after I had this baby was I started keeping a secret, which was that I had fallen into bulimia and it felt exactly the same as when I was using drugs. All of a sudden I was keeping these secrets. 
all of a sudden it was this thing that it was hijacking my brain. And for somebody who's never dealt with bulimia before, you need to understand that it hijacks your brain in the exact same way that drugs do. It is Mm. very different from anorexia. Binge eating disorder and bulimia go hand in hand. I mean, one, you feel like you're resolving the problem by making the food go away. And the other, you're just not. But either way, you're feeling called, compelled to eat certain foods and to obsessively eat them in the way that I would obsessively do drugs. So basically, I might not have been back on drugs, but I might as well have been. And it was Mm -hmm. a terrible, terrible secret to keep. You're in the public eye now as a fitness influencer, and you have this secret. And you said you had a conversation with George, your husband, one day. Why that day? So I had gone back and forth. I would go through a bout with bulimia, and then I would somehow pull myself back off the edge. And and, you know, I was talking to my sponsor, like my recovery sponsor about it. And I was being honest with her and she would send me to like some of the like 12 step recovery groups around food, but the, it's really, really tricky. The food thing. It's really tricky, which is why I'm a weight loss and wellness coach today. I deal with food in the same way that an addict had support in their addiction, because most of the women who come to me, they don't just, oh, I don't know. I have a little bit of a sweet tooth. It's like, I'll lean in and I'll be like, yeah. Yeah. Is that really how it's presenting? And they're like, they break down in tears. And it's like, if I'm really being honest, this has just plagued me since I was like 13 years old. I hear that nine times out of 10. That's not everybody's story, but so many women struggle with binge eating disorder or some sort of compulsivity around food, or they're keeping terrible secrets, or they're wrapping up, you know, candy wrappers or chip wrappers in a bag and throwing it away so their husband doesn't see because they're so ashamed or whatever the case may be. I know what it feels like to be an addict and to keep secrets and to feel ashamed. And I don't want anyone else to have to feel like that. And just because it's food, you shouldn't feel like you are owed any less support. And by the Mm -hmm. way, food is harder because you can't stop eating food, right? Mm -hmm. You can't completely abstain the way you can with drugs. Like I can stop doing cocaine for a couple of years and I won't think about cocaine anymore. But with drugs, with food, you have to keep eating food. So you keep Mm -hmm. picking up the addiction and it's a challenge every single day. I had gone back and forth with this bulimia thing and I would get it under control and then I would go back off the rails. And around the time I had my second child, I got a job on the air at QVC. So I'm on the air. I'm the face of their athleisure brand. And it's a wonderful job that I love so much. But it meant I was on the road going back and forth to Pennsylvania, which is where I live now, incidentally. Mm. But I was living in hotels. I was on the road so much by myself. But I didn't, I had never really been honest enough to get this thing fully under control. And so here I was on my own unlooked after by a friend or family member, able to do my own thing and get away with it. And this thing just completely kicked back up again. I also had a lot of pressure, right? I was in this new role. I really wanted to do well. And that's when as an addict or somebody with any sort of a compulsion, we tend to like really fall off track because the pressure gets the best of us. And I started acting out again when I was by myself on these road trips. And it was terrifying me. Because it was so clear that my disease was in control. My disease was in the driver's seat of my life. I was not. And after a particularly bad bout, after this one weekend, I I just said, this absolutely can't go on like this anymore. I have to do something about it. There's also a story I've told from the stage before where I remember I was alone with my child and I had an episode where I had acted out with food and I was in the bathroom, you know, going with going through a bulimic episode. And I heard my baby crying in the other room. 
And there was, there was nothing I could do to get to him. Like I was so caught up with my own doings in that moment. And it felt so selfish because it was, but addicts and food addicts have to understand, like you are an addict, right? So I wasn't being selfish because I'm a bad person. I'm not a bad person trying to get good. I'm a sick person trying to get well. And I did know enough about that to understand that I just needed help, right? Like I wasn't a bad mom. I was a sick person and I needed help. And so it was just around that time after a couple of those really, really low moments that I went to my husband and I I actually wrote, I typed it all in, in a, a letter that I then sat down with him and I, I gave it to him because I knew I would I might lose my nerve if I sat down and tried to speak. So I organized my thoughts on paper and then I sat down and I I sat with him while he read it and I admitted everything and was for help. I love that distinction between not seeing yourself as a bad person trying to do good, but a sick person needing help. And so you obviously helped women with this now, but what was your solution once you came forward with everything? What was the next step if you have an eating challenge? I truly believe that the same model works for food addiction as it would for drug addiction. And I was very familiar with Mm -hmm. 12-step recovery. And I put together a plan for myself and then invited my husband in on the process as my accountability partner. Now, the clear distinction to make there is that I was not asking him to fix me because he's not qualified to do that, right? So like, he's not a therapist and he's not a nutritionist. I knew what I needed to do to get myself back on track and how, and what type of help and assistance I needed. So I just had to ask him for a modicum of accountability and I had to make it very clear where people tend to go wrong in asking their partner for help is that they're too vague. So they'll say something like, you know, I've heard, you know, a million times, well, I've, oh, I've asked them before, you know, and I'll say, well, what, do, what have you said? And she'll be like, oh, I, you know, just last week I said, Gary, will you help me make sure I don't go in on the Doritos again? Or, you know, will you help me make sure I get to the gym next month? I get, I keep paying for the gym and I'm not going. It's like, Gary doesn't know what to do with that. God bless Gary's heart. Like Gary's not the Doritos police. He's not going to knock the bag of chips out of your hand, like in mid bite. And he also doesn't really know what you mean by get to the gym next month. Like, what does that exactly mean? And you're just going to give him side eye when he tells you to go to the gym. So you haven't really made it clear. You haven't asked for specific help. You guys haven't sat down where you led with vulnerability and told him just the exact depths of your pain and suffering. So he really understands how badly you need this help. And then you haven't put any sort of like guardrails on it. Like, okay, what's the timeline? Are you asking for his help for one day or for 30 days or for a year? Like, can you give him a little more of a solid plan? So he's able to give you the help that you so desperately need. And so that's what I did with my own husband. You know, I had worked with accountability coaches in the past and they had really helped me with different things. Food in particular, I did a great accountability program that helped me lose some weight before the first time I was going on television. And she was quite simply an accountability coach that we would text every day and she would track my cardio and my meals and help me make sure I was staying on my game. And I said, I think that's such a great concept and a great program, but most people probably can't afford to hire an accountability coach for the rest of their life, nor should they necessarily want to do that. But what if you could institute some of that in your own hyper-local space? What if you could set up that method, that format, that framework with, say, your husband or your sister or your roommate? 
but you really had a plan that both of you understood and you were asking for something that was very tangible. And so that's what I did with my husband. I said, Hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you, like when you go away on a business trip, I wanted him to lock. We, we actually put a lock on our pantry because, and some people have said, Oh, don't you think that's extreme? No girl. I think what's extreme is that I would binge on three pints of ice cream and then throw it up in the bathroom. Like that's extreme. That's terrible. And I'd rather not have to do those mental gymnastics. So when my husband's husband is away, he puts our ice cream that our kids still like to eat. It's okay to have it in the house. He puts that in an outside freezer that we have that has a lock on it that we bought from Amazon. And he locks up our pantry. I take out my snacks. I bag them up for each day. I write on with a little, you know, Sharpie and I organize and I get prepared and I prepare for myself. And then he takes care of the rest. So I don't have to do those mental gymnastics. And that works for us. I also have him, you know, I work out seven days a week. That is my plan. That is my intention. But without a plan, I'm likely to not show up, right? Because life gets big and I put other things in front of that. And as long as I stay on a good fitness game and a good healthy eating game, I tend to go off the rails that much less. So seven days a week, we have a little WhatsApp group together where we text each other our proof of workout at the end of our workout just to stay honest with each other. And by the way, he might be in the same house, but I still have to text him because I might say, I'm going to go down and do three miles on the treadmill. And then I go down and I do one and a half miles and I hop off to like pee. And then I get scrolling on Instagram and I come up and he says, how was your workout? And I say, oh, great. Well, if I don't text him the dashboard to prove completion, I'm a friggin' liar and I know it. And you know how I know it? Because I'm a human being and I'm going to try to get away with shit. So this is what I tell my clients. You set up accountability. You set it up with true guardrails. So everybody stays honest. You ask for help with vulnerability where you know you really need it, like me asking for the snacks to be locked up. And then you also ask for help with being your best self where you also need it. So like showing up for myself seven days a week in the gym. That is where we show up for each other. Am I asking a ton from him? No, I'm literally asking him to lock up some snacks and accept a text. It's not that hard, but him showing up for me and knowing where he's expected to show up is what works for us. And then that is how I created my coaching program because it is that exact framework that I teach to other women. I love this idea that discipline is really more about honesty with your own tendencies and knowing, okay, I have a tendency to scroll in the middle of my workout. So I need to put that guardrail in place so that I can hold myself accountable. As your partner, George, in hindsight, what's something that he did well that helped you help yourself? Because I'm sure a lot of partners can fumble the ball as well when it gets revealed that their wife or their husband has not a problem and they may overreact or maybe underreact. So what's something that George, how did George handle that in a way that helped you help yourself? Well, look, none of this is going to go perfectly. So I want to make that really clear at the front end. (laughs) One of the things that I do with my coaching clients in the big ask method is we actually script write and then we role play. So I have Mm -hmm. them practice their ask. So when, when you make the ask, it's like, it's not one and done forever. It's not like you make one ask and then you never have to talk about it. It's a dialogue. But it is the first conversation where you get the fundamentals out there Mm -hmm. and we role play because people will lose their nerve in the middle of a conversation, especially like your partner might look at you funny or have a reaction that you feel judged or a myriad of things might happen. I actually wrote my book about the, I have seven different archetypes of like who shows up on the other side of that conversation, right? Like, you know, Mr. 
you know, makes it all about him, right? Like, mm-hmm. well, I've tried, you know, I always like support you and going to the gym. It's like, that's not what she's saying, bro. That's not what she's saying. You know, she's just saying she needs help because she hasn't shown up for herself or, or Mr. You know, underqualified. Oh, I don't know. I don't, I'm not good at this. Like, you should just ask one of your friends or hire a coach or, you know, or, you know, like Mr. Like likes what he likes. Like, he really loves you, but like he loves his maple glazed donuts better. And he really doesn't want to hear that they're bringing you emotional pain. You know, they have to stay out of the house. So there's a lot of like reasons that the other person might show up with a little bit of, there might be some struggles on the other side. One thing that my husband did very well is that he just listened. And then the first thing he asked was like, just how can I help? Right? Like that was just the first question on the table. The other thing that he'd always done that we've both always done, to be honest, is that we understand that the other person is perfectly imperfect. And that is something that we both learned in recovery circles. He knows that there's days that he's going to try to give me that support and I'm not going to accept it very well. He's going to be like, you know, babe, you you said you were going to really stick to this particular kind of a nutritional plan this week. Do you really think you should be eating that cookie? And I'm going to like want to cut him, you know, like I'm going to look at him with side eye that, you know, could kill a man. And he doesn't have to get mad about it. He doesn't have to yell at me like, well, you told me to hold you accountable. He's like, no, he's having a hard time with it today. And that's tough. You know, this is as much about interpersonal communication as it is about food or fitness. And Mm -mm. you have to understand that first. But one of the things that I hear from my own clients time after time after time is that using the big ask and going through my program help them have a deeper relationship with their partner. They're like, oh my God, my sex life is better. Like I'm using my voice better in all areas of my life. We're communicating better. And I'm like, that's literally what it's about. It's just about the fact that I find in today's world as humans, we try to take too much on ourselves because everybody's promising you that you should be able to fix it by using an app or going to a website or or, or taking a quiz and then figuring out like, you know, that's not how humans are actually meant and designed to function. We are truly better together. Like we are, we are meant to show up and help each other. So learning how to communicate in a, in a way that's more constructive and also learning how to kind of roll with each other as two perfectly imperfect humans, that actually is the lesson more than anything else. How and when did you decide to go public with this issue that you were grappling with? Well, as an influencer as a job, a big part of what I do is sharing about every part of my life. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was so funny that like, I truly could not get myself to go public about this for a long time. And by this, I mean, the bulimia, I had been public about my drug story for a very long time. Something about food felt so much more shameful. And I talk about this now all the time. What is that about food? Why should we, we be so much more embarrassed, especially as women? It's like, I had no problem being like, oh yeah, I did, you know, all these crazy drugs. There was almost like a little sick badge of honor on that. Oh, I was the nightlife girl. I got into, I went to the clubs. I need the DJ. But you want me to admit that I would like closet eat like a box of Girl Scout cookies? I can mortify. But why? Why? They're all just my normal human being shortcomings and my addictive brain leading me around on a leash. And it's just an ongoing battle. I shouldn't feel bad about having to fight that battle. It's just a battle I've been fighting my whole life. For some reason, food felt so much more egregious and so much more shameful than drugs. That's unfortunate. I think by the time I finally did come out with that, 
I was able to make that a part of the message too. And the response that I got back from women fighting their own hard fight and their own battles was unbelievable. And so I started helping women just out of the kindness of my heart. And just because that's what social media does, it allows us an open door through our DMs to people. I started helping people with stuff like this and being an accountability partner with people and just kind of doing it ad hoc. And when I started working with a business development team, when I was working on the proposal for my book, they were like, so you don't do any coaching? And at that time, I was really just an influencer and a media-centric type of gal and a brand ambassador for big brands. I said, well, no, I don't, I don't coach. I don't have like a B2C business per se, but I do coach like literally hundreds of people in my DMs because they come to me and then we become buddies. And they're like, I'm sorry, take me back to the part where you're like coaching hundreds of people, but you're you haven't like set it up as a formal business. And I was like, yeah, I guess that doesn't make a lot of sense. Not just because I could be monetizing it, but because I could be helping so much more people by mm-hmm. systematizing it, you know? And so they helped me create the big ask method, which is the program that I run today. And I coach people through two different ways, which is, you know, I do one-on-one. And then I also have a group boot camp that I take about eight to 10 women through a group boot camp environment, which is done on Zoom over the course of an eight-week period. And once I started interspersing my story in, it was about the same time that I started making this a part of my mission. You also said that the food thing, you know, wanting to lose weight or, or or abusing food is never really about the food. It's about something else. Do you need a coach to discover what that is? Or is there a way to figure that out on one's own? You can absolutely figure that out on one's own. Well, you can ask yourself some very important questions, right? And a lot of what I do with women is just, and this is why it is helpful to get a coach because sometimes we can't be as honest with ourselves and somebody else will push us to be, you know, the same reason that you might stop after doing a couple of reps in the gym because you're a little bit tired. But if you work with a coach, they're going to make you do that last, you know, two or three reps to push yourself. When I coach women and they say, you know, well, you know, I just have kind of a sweet tooth. And then when we get to the bottom of it, it's like, you know, as a, for instance, I had a, a coaching client recently and it's like, she had recently lost her husband and she was like, just convinced that like she deserved, I mean, she would sit on the couch and eat bags of candy. I mean, bags of candy. And she was an older woman and, you know, had raised adult kids and now had grandkids. And she was just hanging onto it. Like I deserve it. I have been through such a hard time. And she was able to justify her behavior by letting herself off the hook because she had had such a tragic experience. And I said, you know, taking nothing away from your need to self-soothe and self-care yourself into a healthier you. Do you think this is what he would want for you? Do you think this is how you're going to best show up for your kids who now like you're the sole surviving parent? You are literally eating yourself into an early grave. And we don't ask ourselves these hard questions quite often. We, we can't because they're very painful, right? But when you have somebody else who's willing to challenge you and is willing to help you get there, She was able to stop letting herself off the hook. And by the way, part of why she was remaining in depression, part of why she was remaining in a feeling of victimization, self-victimhood, is because she felt like crap about herself. Mm -hmm. She was many pounds overweight, but more importantly, her gut health was a wreck. I mean, our gut is where we make 90% of our serotonin. She was eating bags of chemical-laden candy. 
how are you ever going to recover? I mean, food is medicine. If you don't believe that, you're listening to the wrong folks, okay? Food is medicine. You can literally recalibrate your mood by eating better foods. How is she ever going to heal if she was feeding herself like this? And so by challenging her and getting her uncomfortable, I mean, she cried through some of our early sessions because I was asking hard questions. But by doing that and getting to her why, she was able to start to heal and recover. By healing and recovering and starting to absolutely like improve her nutrition and her level of movement and actually getting her endorphins going and getting a little sweat on, she healed herself to a place where she could see herself no longer as a victim. And she started to actually change fundamentally from the inside out. That's why I say this is so much deeper than a diet. So to answer your original question, can you ask yourself those hard questions? You can. And I challenge you to really sit down and do some soul searching, but it might also be helpful to work with a coach like me or work with a therapist to say, all right, am I really asking the the questions that are hard enough? So I really get to the root of what's going on because unpacking your why is critical to figuring out the next step. Beautiful. Well, I think that's a great place to end. I want to thank you so much for using all of your life experience to help other people feel grounded in the same way that you felt grounded as a little girl. And it's clear that you have very much found your calling and your purpose. And I'm excited to be able to call you an acquaintance. And hopefully maybe one day we could spend more time together and develop the friendship. And I know you have a podcast as well that you co-host. You have your Big Ask platform. You're coming out with one book and you have another book in the pipeline. And so you're doing a lot of big stuff, keynote talks, all of that. And I'll definitely put everything in the show notes to help people find you. But yeah, thank you so much for turning your mess into your message and for being an inspiration to us all. Thank you. And the one last thing I'll just mention is that there is a retreat that I'm hosting with a couple of other transformational people in the wellness space happening April 20th through 23rd. We're calling it the Reset Retreat. And it's taking place in Orlando, Florida. I'm co-hosting it with Dr. Don Wood, also Ann Malam, who's the founder of Solid Core, and a woman named Nikki Sharp. I don't know if you know who she is late, but she's incredible. Yeah, Nikki's awesome. Yeah, the four of us will be down there in Orlando. And I have a few spots left. So if any of your listeners would like to come, if you could put the landing page in the show notes, I'll also say it here because I'm going to give your listeners a very nice discount in a moment. So the landing page is the big ask method.com slash retreat. And if any of your listeners late would like to come to that, the code for 20% off, which is a substantial discount off of that price is reset 20. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Jamie Hess. For more inspiration, make sure to follow Jamie on the socials. She is at NYC fit fam, F-I-T-F-A-M. And of course, I'll drop links to everything that Jamie and I discussed in the show notes on my website, which is lightwatkins.com slash show. If this is your first time listening to The Light Watkins Show, we've got an incredible archive of interviews with many other luminaries who share how they found their path and their purpose. People like Humble the Poet and Ava DuVernay and Ed Milet and Saul Williams and Marcus Samuelson and Stephen Pressfield and 
Zachary Levi, and many, many more. So you can search the interviews linearly, or you can search by subject matter in case you want to hear just episodes about people who've taken leaps of faith or people whose main story is about overcoming financial struggles or people who've navigated health challenges. You can get a list of all of those categories at lightwatkins.com slash show. You can also watch these interviews on our YouTube channel. You just go to YouTube, search The Light Watkins Show, and you'll see the entire playlist, and then you can put a face to a story. And if you didn't already know, I post the raw, uncut, unedited version of every podcast inside of my Happiness Insiders online community. So if you're the type that likes hearing all the mistakes and the false starts and the chit chat in the beginning and the end of every episode, you can listen to all of that by going to thehappinessinsiders.com. You can sign up for any of the master classes or the challenges or the access passes. And then inside of the community, you will see the playlist of all of those uncut episodes. And you'll have access to my popular 108-day meditation challenge along with the no complaining challenge and the gratitude challenge and the preparing for the one masterclass and the finding your purpose masterclass and all the other masterclasses and challenges for becoming the best version of you. And then finally, to help me bring you the best guests possible, it would go a really long way if you could just take 10 seconds to rate this podcast. And the way you do that is you glance down at your device, you click on the name of the podcast, you scroll down past the seven previous episodes, you'll see a space with five blank stars. And if you like this show, if you like what we're doing, tap the star all the way on the right and you've left us a five-star rating. And if you want to go the extra mile, I always encourage people to go the extra mile. You can leave a one-line review of what you like about this podcast or what you like about the interviews or if you have an episode that you recommend a new person should start with. All of those could be helpful in terms of spreading the word of this show and helping me to get bigger guests for you. So I really appreciate that. And I thank you in advance for taking the time to do that. Otherwise, I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you taking a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking your leaps of faith. And if no one's told you that they believe in you recently, I believe in you. Thank you very much and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.